Okay, please remain standing and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, beginning at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, let's turn now to our sermon text, Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation... You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. 
The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me Tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you have heard me before use the famous saying, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I use this from time to time because it's a very well, uh, helpful way of thinking about uh, history in general, and Bible history in particular, the history of redemption, the history of God's work, uh, first with Adam and Eve, and then with Noah, and the patriarchs, and Moses, and then the nation of Israel, and its, and its kings, and priests, and prophets, and then climactically in Christ, and now in the church, and then again in the future, when Christ comes again. Along the way, the Lord does not do exactly the same thing over and over, but his work often follows the same patterns. What he does in one place and time often pictures or previews other things that he plans to do in the future. And if you turn that coin over, then it works the other way around too. Very often, the the new things that God does at a new period in history, we can interpret best, we can explain best in light of, or in terms of, things he already did before in the past. So we, we can describe, we can understand God's new actions using the pictures and the vocabulary of God's past actions. And I think that principle is really helpful for understanding 
Habakkuk chapter 3. As you read along, you might think, wait, is Habakkuk talking about the past, the present, or the future? Which is it? I think the best answer is yes. Yes, he is. He's describing what God is about to do in light of using the imagery and the, the vocabulary of things that God did long ago. And he can do that because it's the same God at work, working out the same plan now that he has been from the very beginning. So let's break this chapter down into three parts as we start here. The first part and the last part are quite short, but then there's the long section in the middle um, that uh, takes up most of the chapter. So the first one is going to be crisis and compassion. That's the first two verses. Second, the coming of the Lord, verses 3 through 16. And then last will be contentment and confidence, verses 17 to 19. So crisis and compassion, the coming of the Lord, contentment and confidence. All right, so first this crisis and compassion. Now you'll notice that this, uh, this third chapter is set up very much like one of the Psalms, right? Uh, the first verse and the last verse give this uh, description of uh, of the of the poetry and these musical instructions, very similar to what you'd find in the headings of the Psalms in the Book of Psalms. Right? Um, don't worry too much about what Shigianoth means. We probably can't know for sure. It's probably giving some information about how the music for this Psalm should sound. Um, it might be calling for a sort of enthusiastic, energetic kind of music, maybe even kind of irregular, kind of uh, verging on wild. Um, that's less certain, although that would fit the contents of very much of this prayer. See, Habakkuk is living right now through one of the darkest times in Israel's history, the end of the monarchy. And it's about to get a whole lot darker with the Babylonian invasion. And so you can um, imagine the, the angst, the, the desperation even in his heart as Twice in this book, he has cried out to God for answers, and twice God has given him answers, but the answers have not been easy. They've raised other questions, right? Habakkuk, you remember, is being called to wait. He's being called to that patient, enduring faith, and he's going to trust in the goodness and the justice of God during some very tragic events that are about to take place. And so as, as Habakkuk now prays again, where does he turn but to the past? The future he cannot see clearly, but the past he knows on the basis of the word of God. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. See, Habakkuk is looking back on what God has done before, what's recorded in the history of God's people up to this point. And he is taking his stand there. He's taking his stand on these historic acts of God, not just some vague, abstract kind of notions of God, just as an idea. See, God is not a thought bubble over our heads. This is so important. God is not just a big idea to inspire us. Or, or for us to aspire to. The whole message of the Bible 
is that God has acted. He has broken in to time and space and history, and he has done things, supernatural things, to save and help his people. And that's what we're to focus on. That is how we're supposed to discern what God is like, what kind of God he is. We're also supposed to hope, then, that what God has done in the past, he will do again in the future. And that's because God does not change. We can count on him, therefore, to work in the future in ways that match, that rhyme with how he acted back then. So Habakkuk is saying, Lord, I know what you did before. But now, Lord, now will you act in the same way for us. Renew, repeat your work in this generation. Bring it to life in a fresh way. Keep your promises for us as you have for the people who came before us. I love the hymn that says, Revive thy work, O Lord. Thy mighty arm make bare. Speak with a voice that wakes the dead. And make thy people hear. Revive thy work, O Lord. Disturb this sleep of death. Quicken the smoldering embers now by thine almighty breath. We're praying that that mighty saving work of God would not just be an artifact of the past for us to, to hear about. But that it would be a living, present reality through the Holy Spirit we might experience ourselves in our own hearts and lives and community the wonderful works of God. Now at the end of verse 2, there's that well-known phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. Some of you may know the famous speech from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice comparing mercy and justice. The, the scepter of a king, Portia says, shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy, mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And earthly power, she says, acts most like God's power when mercy seasons justice. Very profound insight, I think, from the playwright. Now, to add to that, um, the word for wrath here, get a little little, uh, more specific in the meaning of this verse, The, the word for wrath here isn't your typical word for wrath. It's not focusing directly on on anger. Um, It has to do more with agitation or commotion, restlessness, disquiet, um, all of which I guess are dimensions of anger, although I think it may be that Habakkuk is describing here more the impact of God's judgment on Israel um, than than a characteristic of God in that word that's translated wrath. Um, F.F. Bruce translates this, In tumult, remember compassion. In tumult, remember compassion. It's very similar, but gives you a little bit different angle on what Habakkuk's saying here. So 
In other words, with everything that's about to happen, Habakkuk knows that his world, Israel's world, is about to turn upside down, right? And from a human point of view, it's going to look like and feel like Judah's very existence as a nation is going to be um, in question. It's going to be possibly coming to an end. And so Habakkuk is pleading with God here, Lord, do for us now what you've done before. Even in all this turmoil that we've brought upon ourselves by our sin, I know, but even still, would you, along with the coming judgment, show us also that other aspect of your character, your mercy, your compassion, seeing us in our helplessness and our misery and our need, yet again, that utter mess that we've made again of our lives and of our relationship with you, and would you come and help us? It's like Psalm 80 that we sang earlier where the tree of Israel has been cut down, but Lord, restore us. In wrath, remember mercy. In tumult, remember compassion. Okay, starting in verse 3, then, we get a picture of what we're calling the coming of God. The coming of God. Now, remember, I, I started by saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So, um, imagery from the past, then, can help us understand the present, help us look forward to the future. And that is what's happening in this middle section here. So right away, verse 3 uh, kind of clues us into this when it says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Mount, Mount Paran. Uh, you think, well, I don't know those places. Well, all you need to know is that this is getting us to think about what happened after the Exodus because these are places in between Egypt and the Promised Land. And, and the picture that, God then, that, sorry, that Habakkuk then gives us of the coming of God uh, resembles very closely, should call to mind the appearance of God on Mount Sinai. Remember the fire and the smoke and the thunder and the trumpet blast and how God came down that day and he met with Israel and his presence was absolutely overwhelming to them. The Israelites could not handle it. It was so glorious. And I love, by the way, the end of verse 4. After he's gotten finished describing the, the brightness of God's light, the, like, like the, the rays flashing from his hand, he then says, there he veiled his power. He's saying the, this glory is being revealed, this bright light. But then he's saying that's actually God veiling his power. It's, it's as though the glory that we see is just what's peeking through, not the main thing. Um, I love what O. Palmer Robertson says here. He describes it this way, that rays of unapproachable glory stream from his hand. What then must be the nature of this power and glory hidden in his clenched fist. There is his hand, the spot from which those glorious rays proceed. There the unlimited power of the Almighty resides. It's glorious, so imaginative, and beautiful poetic way of describing the power of God here. In other words, the glory that Israel sees, overwhelming as it is, bright as it is, it's just the beginning. It's just the corona around the sun, like when the sun is eclipsed. As Job says, these are but the edges of his ways. And as we go on from there, the imagery broadens uh, to take in some things that happened both before and after Mount Sinai. So before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Uh, obviously, we can think they're about the ten plagues on Egypt um, and then later in verse 8, it speaks of God's power over the rivers and the sea. And so we think about the crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan River, 
very similar parallel events. Um, uh, verse 7, uh, Kushan in affliction, Midian trembling. Uh, these refer to great victories in the book of Judges. That comes after the conquest of Canaan, or as part of that conquest. And uh, so, so you can see there, there are all of these events from Israel's past that are kind of converging then. It's kind of this collage of Exodus, Sinai, conquest, all this glorious work of God from the past converging in this one extended word picture of the coming of God. And so together, all of this imagery illustrates the same theme. is the sovereign majesty and the overwhelming forcefulness of God's approaching presence. So you look at verse 6 where it says, He stood and measured the earth. I was thinking about this. I recently wanted to measure my garage and, and uh, uh, see if a van that we were thinking about fit in it. And uh, I had to kind of wrestle with my tape measure. You, know, you pull it out, and you're trying to measure a long distance. It keeps kinking up, and then you let go, and it you know, zips back into the... I can barely measure my garage. But the Lord just stands there, and he measures the whole earth with a glance. That's how awesome and powerful the Lord is. He can stand on the earth and measure it all with this ease and this authority that shows that he is the Lord over all of it, that he's the creator king who made it all, who owns it all, who can do with it all whatever he pleases, including when he gave the promised land to Israel in the first place, and including now when he's about to take it away. Verse 10, look at how the natural world reacts to God's approach, the mountains writhing and the waters raging. It's a contrast kind of with um, Psalm 98. You know, we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's kind of loosely based on Psalm 98 that it expresses this great joyful response of the creation to God's coming and um, uh, kind of this uh, praise and celebration like a parade. Um, this is the other side of nature's reaction to the coming of God, the writhing and raging. The sun and moon stood still. Another historical reference there. You think about God's great victory through um, Joshua. Um, when Joshua won great victories, it was really the light of God's arrows. It was really the flash of God's spear. That's what won Israel's great victories in the past. When God, verse 13, went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, and crushed the head of their wicked enemies. But you see, what's happening now is Habakkuk knows that that same power, those same arrows, that same flashing spear, they're all about to be turned against Judah in judgment against God's people. And so the coming of the Lord this time, at least for a time, is not going to be good news for Judah. This is why, in verse 16, Habakkuk is physically distraught. I hear and my body trembles. He says, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. But then at the end of verse 16, you can see that Habakkuk is also looking ahead to something else. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. See, the hope is that even though the Lord is going to use Babylon to judge Israel, he is also, after that, going to deal with Babylon itself, too. 
See, there, there are two kinds of people in Judah right now. And those two kinds of people are going to experience the same thing in very different ways. It is true that everybody is going to go into exile. Um, even the righteous, faithful remnant is going to go into exile. The judgment is coming on the whole nation. But within the nation of Judah, there are still some people like Habakkuk. People who are loyal to the Lord. People who are still trusting, who are still hoping, who are still waiting. And it is these people that Habakkuk is reassuring. There is hope beyond the exile. Beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. And that is not the end. This crisis does not mean that God has changed. God is still the same. His covenant is still the same. And his ways of working are still the same. What he has done in the past, they can expect him to do again in the future. So then in the last three verses... Habakkuk then is setting the example for these loyal few, that faithful remnant of what it looks like to wait and to trust through times like these. To trust that the Lord is still good, that he's still faithful to his covenant, that he's going to care for his own even through the very darkest times for Judah as a nation. And so he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, all these word pictures for impoverishment, total loss, the kind of total loss that will come when Babylon invades, when everything that once belonged to Judah is now going to belong to foreigners. They're going to take it all. Even if I lose everything, Habakkuk saying, I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to take joy in the God of my salvation. This is a faith like Job's faith. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Back you say, my sense, my sense of ultimate well-being doesn't depend on my personal prosperity, the prosperity of my nation. It depends on the Lord. God the Lord is my strength, and He's going to make my feet like the feet of a deer. I can walk up on those high mountain places where a human would have trouble walking around, staying upright. But that animal is a picture of being safe and secure in a dangerous place. Stable in the midst of instability. Someone who, within the crisis, can rest in God's compassion and trust that, that that is what is truly decisive. That's, it. That's what's at rock bottom, is the character of God, when everything else is changing all around. See, it's not that God's people aren't going to go through life's hardest experiences. 
is that they are going to experience them in a different way. The message of Habakkuk is not that the righteous will avoid suffering. It's that the righteous will live by his faith when the suffering comes. And and that's what Habakkuk is doing here at the end. Again, contentment and confidence. These are the fruits of that faith from chapter 2, that patient, trusting expectancy, that waiting with steady confidence and hope for the promises of God. So that in the crisis, in the loss, in the impoverishment and the devastation of the exile, Habakkuk can rejoice because he can see behind it, seeing who God is, what God has always done in the past, and he can see beyond it, trusting that God will continue to be the same God and to do the same kinds of things in the future. That's what we're called to do as the people of God in our times. While the rest of the world is just looking at the 24-hour news cycle, seeing the chaos of the present, we are called, through the word of God, to see behind those things and to see beyond them. And in doing that, you and I have the advantage of looking back and seeing even more history than Habakkuk could see. So many things that were future for Habakkuk are now part of that history for us. They're part of the past. We can see all the more clearly than he could that character of God doing just what Habakkuk trusted him to do, to preserve and rescue and redeem his people in spite of their sin, in spite of their failure, by his sovereign power and grace. You can see it during the exile with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can see it uh, with Esther and Mordecai. You can see it after the exile with Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra, all these things that were yet future, the answers to Habakkuk's prayers. And now we see the Lord's answers now passed for us, just as the exodus and conquest were passed for Habakkuk. The Babylonian captivity was not the end for Judah. It was not the end of God's history of salvation. It was just another step along the way. The Lord continued, just like Habakkuk expected. He continued to be the same kind of God and to do the same kinds of things. And all of that, of course, was preparing for his greatest work of all, in the coming of God in flesh and blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world was in crisis, and how did God respond? He responded, once again, with compassion. In wrath, remember mercy, Habakkuk prayed. What clearer picture do we have of that than the coming of the Lord Jesus, who waded right in, personally, in the flesh, into the tumult of this world. And he even took upon himself the, the, the wrath of God that we deserve, the judgment itself. He bore that flaming fury of the coming of God in judgment against our sin on the cross. And he did that so that we could encounter the coming of God in a different way. In that Psalm 98 kind of way, in that joy to the world kind of way. 
can look forward to it with joy and hope and eager longing instead of with rottenness in our bones, quivering lips, trembling bodies, trembling legs. This is just what the church is doing now. Right now, we are eagerly longing for the coming of God. That's what we want, right? That's we, we're looking for the return of the Lord Jesus in all of his glory and majesty. This kind of glory and majesty in Jesus' return. All this imagery of Habakkuk coming into its own and the final arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the world and to save his people. See, we, like Habakkuk, are looking to the past to see what God is like through what God has done, except that we have all the more past to look back upon because we can look back on Christ himself and we can, conceive, we can see confirmed there in him, yet again, both the mercy and the majesty of God. And like Habakkuk, we're looking forward. We're looking forward to the future with that patient, trusting expectancy. We're waiting with confidence and hope for the promises of God. Except that for us, the future is a little bit clearer, too, than it was for him. And so that contentment and that confidence of Habakkuk, we have all the more reason to have that as well. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though things do not turn out the way that I had hoped, though the plans for my life don't pan out, though I lose things that are precious to me. And though I experience every grief and heartache that life can hold, and though the pain feels overwhelming and the weakness won't go away, and though the the skies just seem gray and life itself feels burdensome, yet I will rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. I will take joy in the God of my salvation who has given me Jesus. And if he's given me Jesus, then what is there that he won't give me? If he's given me Jesus, then he's given me everything I need. And he's going to keep his promise, therefore. To give me the strength to carry on with contentment and confidence until my Lord comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, though the fig tree should not blossom and no fruit be on the vines and the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food and the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet we will rejoice in you. We will take joy in the God of our salvation. Lord, be our strength. Make our feet like the feet of the deer. Make us tread on our high places. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.